Active travel. They're words that get banded about a lot at the moment, aren't they? But what do we actually mean by active travel? And why should you care about it? Why should you spare me, I'm Lee Craigie by the way, Scotland's ambassador for active travel, the time it takes to listen to this podcast series and contemplate your own relationship with it. Active travel is simply choosing to walk, ride or wheel our way from A to B. But it's not always as easy as just choosing to travel actively. The streets we live on have been designed around cars and not people. Safe routes to schools and shops don't always exist. We know that the way our towns and cities are constructed has a massive effect on the health and well-being of the people who live and work in them. We also know that the more people have a say in any changes being made to their community will mean they find that change easier to get on board with. But how do we ensure we bring everyone along with us when we make the changes to our shared spaces and our transport systems that we so desperately need to for our health and for the environment? I don't have the answers. But in this episode of Moving Conversations, I'll be walking and talking with some people who just might. There's several reasons why I think I feel so passionately about what I do. Daisy Narinyan is an architect and urban designer who has spent the last decade working in sustainable transport and climate action. I love the idea of good design. If places are designed well, if places are designed with with the people who inhabit them, whether people live or work or travel through or, or play, I feel really passionately about that kind of people and place coming together uh-huh. to make the quality of life better. My mum, she had a really really bad accident about 15 years ago. She was crossing the road and was a hit and run and she almost died. And for me, that whole experience of road violence and how the impact and the shadow it throws on on not just your life, but the life of everyone you love Uh has had a real impact on why I do what I do. And for me, so it's it's that two streams of making our roads, our streets safer Uh and also making it more beautiful and then making it a place where you know you can be proud to leave a legacy for the next generation. Mm. I mean you and I are, are kind of of the same opinion on this stuff but what of the, the taxi drivers and the delivery drivers mm-hmm. and the people that also live and belong in, in yes. our shared spaces, how do we work with that tension? Yes. I think for me what has been really useful is any conversation you have whether it's with a business, whether it's someone who, you know, who needs a car to go where they want, someone who loves to drive a car mm-hmm. as well. You know, the conversation begins with, don't we all want the best city that we live in, the best place that we could live in? And no one wants to live in a place that is congested, that's, you know, smells of fuel, and uh-huh. That, uh-huh. that is not a nice place to be. And so it's hard to drive around. Exactly, <laughs> <as well. laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. So if we start from that common shared understanding of look we we all want the best right so uh-huh. let's let's walk backwards from there and see how we get there mm-hmm. and we may not agree on everything but at least we agree that this is what we want and mm-hmm. i think that takes away some of the toxicity that you see in mm-hmm. the conversation so then you can have your conversation on the basis of right what are the challenges and let's work through them together uh-huh. and i think there is there is also the the discussion around you know the more you can give people a choice, the more that we 
change the streets back to what it used to be perhaps you mm. know away from this the design of the, the freedom so-called freedom around the, that the car gives you and come back to what our streets used to be perhaps mm. so you know yeah the more you can do that yeah, yeah interesting that we do, that we that we talk about freedom with cars because it's only freedom for a small select amount of people exactly. and yeah. you know when you consider actual freedom freedom of limb movement and play yes, and exactly and, and, you know, not being bound up by car parking and yeah. fuel emissions it's a totally different sort of freedom i mean but edinburgh is such an amazing city and, and a few years ago we had uh, what we call open streets which are the car which is the car free sunday program uh -huh. and i remember we were i was walking down you know there was oh you came for the first one i did yeah i did i drive chris boardman along yes <laughs> Yes, I reminded him of that when we last met. <laughs> but we were walking down the Royal Mile and, you know, there's no traffic. It was car free. And mm -hmm. someone said to me, isn't this amazing? You can stand in the middle of the road and enjoy this incredible architecture, which so much of it is lost because you're, you're, you know, you're just trying to get through the pavement. Yeah. So how can we kind of channel the joy, uh -huh. but also make it as uh, easy for people who are trying to do their business there and get around. Is there a place or an example that you have or that you cite when you know when people say well it just can't be done you know there, there, no such place exists? <laughs> <laughs> well there's there's different places that evoke um, you know joy in different ways isn't there I love I love going to European cities where you know for example Vienna is one where I remember walking around and everything feels really joined up and really integrated. You can hop on a tram, you can jump on a bus. It feels seamless and really mm. easy, just as uh, it should be when mm. you're just trying to get from A to B. I love places like London where you can see new infrastructures gone in and being used in a way that is pretty astonishing in mm. places. You know, people cycling who you would never think uh, to have seen about 10 years ago. So that's pretty amazing. Uh -huh. I love Edinburgh, it's my city, it's my adopted <laughs> home. You know, I laugh because we talk a lot about 20-minute neighbourhoods and that's one of the programmes that I'm... Describe my, what a 20-minute neighbourhood is. 20-minute neighbourhood is, essentially, it's, a, it's an approach whereby, you know, you have access to all the amenities that you need for your daily life within a 10-minute walk there and 10-minute walk back. Now, there's a whole series of variations of this theme. Paris has a 15-minute city. Melbourne's looking at a 20-minute neighbourhood as well. So for Edinburgh, the approach that we are looking at is 10 minutes there and back. Okay. But without kind of getting stuck with the number of minutes, it's uh -huh. more about having easy access to you, you know, living well locally, uh -huh. essentially, having uh -huh. a good okay. life. So I live shops in and doctor yes. surgeries and schools exactly. and everything yeah, within schools. a 10 minute. And then access to public transport, so when you want to go further, okay. that's easy as well. Yeah. I live in the city centre in Edinburgh and I joke to everyone that my 20-minute neighbourhood has a volcano, a castle, uh, a parliament. <laughs> is that where everyone's going to get? <laughs> but the trade-off is that I live in a flat, uh -huh. you know, yeah. in a tenement flat. I don't have a big house and a, and a big garden. So how do you make, sh make sure that everyone can have access to what they need without having the big trade-offs? Uh -huh. So, yeah. yeah. What you just talked about there, when I lived in Edinburgh, mm -hmm. um, I got my health suffering even though I lived in a really nice green mm -hmm. leafy part I'm not from the city I don't belong yes. in a city and <laughs> yes. I just felt myself sort of closing in and really desperate to be out in wild places yes and 
and I come from, and I was living in a really lovely bit of the yes, city. Yeah. Um, isn't that so interesting? Because that is exactly, isn't it? Your idea of a good place is perhaps quite different to my idea, uh -huh. or perhaps very different to you know others. And that comes back to where you belong and what you feel is your place, your space. Uh -huh. But good places always have something that makes you. I mean, even when you lived in Edinburgh, I'm sure there were places where you thought actually. This is good. Yeah, there were. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could be in the Pentlands in 15 minutes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, and yes. my health and what I need for my yes. physical and emotional and social health is going to be different from from yes. yours, I'm, I'm quite sure. Absolutely. Let alone someone from a completely different walk of life. Absolutely. And also, I mean, coming back to the point about inclusion, you know, if you are um, in a wheelchair or if you're visually impaired, your 20 minute neighborhood will look very very different to, to mine uh -huh. so how do you capture those nuances uh -huh. when you talk about you know your place uh -huh. i mean the way you've described it just now freaks me out a little bit <laughs> <laughs> because i'm just thinking oh my goodness so many different people so many different yes. directions to be pulled in so mm -hmm. many people to satisfy and different wants and likes and needs mm -hmm. But then when I think about the way you described placemaking mm -hmm. yes. um, just a few moments ago, you talked about it as being um, having all these different strands coming into it and yes. therefore the possibility for it being a social leveller is huge. Yes. So it, on one hand it's massively challenging <laughs> and on yes. the other hand it's this incredible opportunity. It is. We talk about social justice and I think the themes of inequity and social justice are embedded so deeply in how we experience our streets and how we experience our places especially when you're more vulnerable as a woman you experience a place very differently i think when you go mm. for a run or you go you know uh, in the evenings or in the winter to yeah. perhaps others so i think making sure that at all stages of any conversation around place or place making that whole underpinning of inequity is at the forefront and how do you then make a place better and more equal for everyone? Mm. And then suddenly things start to fall into place. And then, you know, human beings are, in my, in my mind, the happiest when we are connected to, to green, to nature. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some things which are universal that make a good place. Open spaces, green spaces, traffic-free spaces, squares, places to sit and enjoy, people watch. I think there's some things that human beings just connect with each other mm. and with themselves. Mm. So, But you don't choose to live rurally because it no. feels like the city gives you something. It does. Enough. I grew up in Bombay. That's what I know. Mm -hmm. you know and, it, and I feel Edinburgh's got a lovely scale. It's not as busy and crazy as Bombay, of course. Uh -huh. But it's, it's big enough and it's small enough. It feels like the right size for okay. me at this time in my life. Um, yeah, I'm a city person, uh -huh. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah. But you also have one eye on what a good city feels like, yes. um, and what we need to make it good for more than just the. I think so. I mean, I have my views, and I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? Very often, I have to tell myself, in my job or in you know the, the discussions that I have, it's not about my views, <laughs> it's about the collective, mm. and especially when it comes to city design and movement because I am lucky, I'm able-bodied. I'm very, very privileged and I'm aware of my privilege. So um, it's very easy for me to say, this is how we should do it, you know? Mm. There's research that says this and mm. there's all of that. Mm. Statistics say this, but actually, 
there's more than that, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And to reach beyond that and to hear other people's stories mm -hmm. and to make those stories help in creating a, a place that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the joy, that's the privilege, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. <laughs> yes. What a lovely way to end that. <laughs> a joy, a privilege and a challenge. In that order. In that order, yes. <laughs> in that order. <laughs> And it's rising to that challenge that is so important if we are to hear and understand and make the changes to our shared spaces that everybody is happy with, not just the privileged few that include people like Daisy and me. Over to me. <laughs> Should I say what my name is? Oh, why not? <laughs> I'm Alice Lemkis. I'm a researcher and facilitator, and I'm also just finishing writing up my PhD. My PhD is about the disconnect between policy around people experiencing disadvantage and uh, the lived reality that people face who are experiencing disadvantage and, and how they frame their, their own problems. So it's looking at what policy gets wrong, I suppose, and the harmful consequences of that. Ultimately, my desire is for policymakers to um, really tune in to people's lived realities at the beginning to frame the problem differently and frame the solutions differently and then everything would be much more efficient and effective. Because transport is a social justice issue. The most privileged of us can afford to drive our own cars but it's the least privileged among us who are most likely to be affected by road violence and air pollution. It's also a privileged few who make our transport policies, and it's a certain demographic who will turn up to a community consultation on the subject. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Because at the moment, what happens is policymakers, they see a problem in society like drug taking or homelessness, and they're like, right, we'll sort that. Mm. And then they put all these policies in place without actually really stopping to take the time to listen to the people experiencing those problems because their reality is very different. Mm. Well, that's really interesting because policymakers do listen, they do stop and listen, and they're, they're very passionate about evidence and collecting as much data and evidence as possible to fix social harms such as homelessness and drug-taking. But the, the thing is that we've, we've got a very narrow idea of this evidence. We're only looking at a very narrow portion of evidence and it tends to fit within the status quo of what we think the problem is. The police have a lot of data and statistics about rough sleepers in London, for example, and they know things like the percentage of rough sleepers that are taking certain drugs, class A drugs, and that sort of knowledge is then used to form policies to deal with rough sleeping, with the ultimate aim to end rough sleeping, which is all well and good. But another argument would be, why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know what percentage of rough sleepers are taking drugs? Does it matter? How much does it actually matter? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a cause and consequence of their rough sleeping? Is it just because we assume that people who are sleeping rough are somehow to blame for their situation? Does that make us feel a bit better? We could be looking at different evidence about rough sleeping, like, you know, how, how many people have they spoken to today? 
how many people do they feel close to these sorts of things like social isolation and loneliness we know have huge impacts on people's health and well-being but we don't measure that so when it comes to policymakers they do want to do good in the world but they're only looking for a tiny bit of evidence which supports the inequalities I suppose in society no transformation is going to take place so long as we are just looking at the types of evidence that we've always looked at mm. so when we think about things like co-production co-creation lived experience groups and community consultations and all of these buzzwords that are flying around what we mean is that we want to amplify the voice of people with lived experience amplify the voice of people who are marginalized and oppressed in society and bring their knowledge and their wisdom into policy making or into research service design and service delivery and that that's ultimately a good thing but um, it's not what you see happening i suppose co-production in the last few years that I've been working in and around the edges of it the term is really flourishing and when I see it cropping up in social policy uh, I think it's important to be wary of that because on one end of the spectrum which is where I see a lot of it it's essentially consultation so the problem has already been defined mm. by the people in power and they are seeking the insight of people on the ground, um, citizens, about what they think about that. Uh-huh. That's consultation, that's not co-production. If you're doing co-production properly and authentically, you have to be willing to let go of what you think you know, of what you think the problem is. You have to be open to the possibility that this group that you've gathered together will conceive of things in a very different way. So to just draw you away from your area of expertise which is severe and multiple um, disadvantage and into making active travel world, I can totally imagine how elected members and civil servants are responsible for making those changes to our shared spaces they'd be freaking out at <laughs> the idea of having to consult absolutely everybody from all different walks of life. And, and, and I suppose the relevance of speaking to you is that we hear from a lot of those people's, people in society already who have that language and they have that platform and they have you know, their computer literate or they can go to a community consultation in a traditional sense and they can say how they feel about you know, access to green space or being able to ride their bike to school or work. But there's a whole bunch of people who don't have that same way of thinking about mm. this or they don't have the same language or the same access to, to the people in power, I suppose. And I suppose it's even more important and relevant that, they, that their voices are heard because green spaces, our shared spaces, are even more important to those people mm-hmm. who can't afford golf club membership mm-hmm. and they don't have a car of their own and they're stuck in these little cells in city centres mm-hmm. without without green spaces to yeah. 
just do what we all naturally need to do and walk and breathe and run and play. Yeah, he had a really interesting uh, conversation with a group in uh, Newcastle about how communities feel about net zero. Uh And there were lots of very small examples of the way that policy, which is very well-meaning and serves some people, has had pretty disastrous impacts on their ability to access green space. So one example was given of this no mo may, no mo thing. No mo may. No mo may. Might have got that wrong. Um, What's no mo may? So councils have got on board with this idea that if you don't mow something uh, and you let wildflowers grow, oh, see. they turn them into meadows. <laughs> got you. <laughs> no mowing. Um, that's good for the planet. Uh-huh. And what these people are saying is what they, they experience it as lip service towards the planet. Like it looks like the council is making all this effort by not mowing. But what happened is this, this one field that this estate had near to them where they could have picnics or their kids could play football was suddenly not usable anymore because it was this massive overgrown meadow. (laughs) And they cited lots of examples like that or, you know, councils building new houses because there's a housing shortage. It's taken away all of the green space that has ever surrounded that estate Uh such that they need to cross a motorway in order to access a strip of greenness sat next to a road. Uh So, I mean, it's felt... You're right, it's felt disproportionately by poorer people living in, yeah, less well-off places within our cities, are feeling the impact of um, an uncaring council, an uncaring government, uh-huh. um, because of these, the fallouts of policy, I guess. Yeah. What happens if we then learn that there's two different sections of our society that are conflicting? Well, I guess the environmentalists and the people that are terrified of our uh, biodiversity loss are like, yes, no more, no more May. That's what we need. <laughs> um, and then you've got that group of, of families who are like, yeah, but our kids need somewhere to play. <laughs> you know, th- that, that is a headache for anybody trying to make a change to the way we use our shared spaces. Mm-hmm. I suppose the thing about co-production done well is that you're not you're not saying that the only opinions that matter are those of the oppressed you're you're just trying to make a more authentic conversation and the nice thing about co-production or action research is it's not just about the outcome so the way in which action research or co-production is different from traditional research or or consultation is that action is the priority it's not you're not just there to pay lip service and talk about stuff part of the process is getting things done and that is good for people because everyone has had experience of feeling let down like their voice has gone nowhere they've fed into a consultation or they've given up their time to take part in some research and then they never hear anything back Uh it just all feels like a waste of time they've been taken for granted so co-production and action research if it's done really well it has the potential to to really empower people and um, see that their knowledge matters I suppose Mm -hmm. it's also 
well known that just by taking part in a process like that has a beneficial outcome for the people that are taking part just in and of itself taking part in something like that is good for people. So essentially, what it sounds like Alice is saying is that doing what is best for individual communities has to start right back at the beginning, before the people in power have defined the problem and are busy developing policies to solve it. We need to listen to what others think the problem might be first. Oof, I can hear policymakers' brains melting right across Scotland now. But what a brilliantly radical idea. Ask people who might have the problem what they think the problem actually is. And what they think the solution might be. Okay. Let's meet Josie Ayres, a co-design officer for Young Scott, an organisation that involves young people in policy making. Josie and her team of young people have been working on a piece of co-design work very close to my heart. Transport Scotland contracted Young Scott for a piece of co-design work, didn't they? They did. They did. That was on free bikes, which is one of my objectives as ambassador for active travel. I am so into this objective. The <laughs> idea that we could, we could get every young person in Scotland, whether they can afford it or not, a bike yeah. to move about on. Yeah. To give them that autonomy of transport and that joy that can be found for mm. travelling independently. And When we first heard about it as a team, um, it was something we were really willing to do. A really good project. And of course everyone goes, free bikes, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I want a free bike, do we get a free bike? <laughs> I don't think, well, no, some of them do fit within the criteria, don't they? They so, do, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Some of the young people, I mean, sadly for staff, we'll have to get our own, but yeah, that's, that's okay. We can do that. <laughs> this project, the free bikes for children pro project, has really helped I think policymakers understand from a different perspective what it is that needs to be done in order to make this a viable project and one that young people are going to buy into essentially they're going to mm. want to take, take part in which is brilliant but so often it's not the case is it so often it's the case of uh, policymakers or politicians spout these grand manifesto promises and then everyone scurries around to deliver them without this consultation first. So I'm just wondering, what is it that we stand to lose, not just in terms of active travel policy making, but in everything, what do we stand to lose if we don't have that pause to listen to essentially the people that the policy that we're putting in place is affecting? My, my first reaction is to flip it on its head and to say, well, we stand to gain everything. Mm. Because ultimately, all of these policies and government departments and people in power, if we think about that on a bigger scale, what are they all here for? Well, they're here to serve our future generations, are they not? And I think we forget that sometimes. We all forget that because we get waylaid in the day-to-day -day of, you know, putting out the bins and having our own political opinions on the day, right? But really, it's about paving the way for a better future for the next generation coming through whether you have children or not that should be something that we're all aspiring to mm. so if they're not allowed 
a seat at the table or if we forget to even ask them to come along to to have a seat at the table we're stabbing in the dark uh-huh. <laughs> we're guessing in the void uh-huh. because unless you actually hear the voices of the people that the future of our S- Scottish society I suppose is for then what are we all doing yeah so yeah I think we stand everything to gain uh-huh. by inviting these voices to, to participate it feels like a no-brainer Of course we should invite invested parties to the table to help define and then solve their own problems. But I guess if co-creation were that simple, Josie and I wouldn't even be having this conversation. It's a real skill as as an organisation, as individuals working in that organisation to deliver that well. Mm. Allowing participation to happen in its fullest can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. It can feel expensive, it can feel long, <laughs> it can feel uh, like it hasn't got a quick enough turnaround for mm-hmm. what your budgets are or for what you're expected to deliver. Just because something might cost a bit more or it might take longer doesn't mean it's expensive. Mm. Because the richness that you get from, for example, in my job, delivering a workshop with young people for even four hours of a day. Mm is so invaluable and not just from the content that you're delivering with them so say in the context of our project we recently delivered an in-person workshop with young people that was on the topic of creating ideas around the project based on what they'd already come out of so of course they had amazing ideas didn't they of course they did Um, lots of interesting blue sky thinking but also practical realistic thoughts and thoughts about making sure that young people with disabilities can participate with with bike riding, all of it. So lots of great ideas. But the other richness that came out of it was those conversations that you just had ad hoc, the mm-hmm. laugh that you had mm-hmm. with the young people on the fringes, the thoughts that they had on their favorite TikTok trend or what they think about the news. All of that was invaluable because unless you speak to them, <laughs> unless you have just a normal daily conversation with any group of people, young people or otherwise, how on earth are you going to understand their perspective? Yeah. How, how on earth are we going to be able to bridge gaps of difference? I think it provides an actual realistic human space for you to connect with other people and that's ultimately where we make our own most learning mm. is when we connect with others. Mm-hmm. So unless we connect with young people, not just asking for their opinions but actually connect with them as human beings and chat about how they don't like mushrooms on pizza, unless you have that connection, we're never truly going to know what it is that they want and what they need from their future Mm. and that will take time and it will take money but I don't think that's expensive I think that's an investment that everyone should be making to be honest with you If only making healthy sustainable changes to our transport system and shared spaces was simple but it isn't If I've learned anything from these conversations, it's been how important it is to bring as diverse a range of people along on the decision-making ride. Because solutions for some people will be problems for others. There will never be one solution to creating a more active population, because we're all so different. But at least by taking the time to listen, reflect and debate our different experiences, we might all expand our understanding of what needs done for the greater good. In the next episode of Moving Conversations, I'll be taking a walk 
or maybe even a bike ride with some people who understand the impact that active travel could have on levelling up our current health inequalities. Meanwhile, big thanks to Penn and Dan at Adventurous Audio who produced this series. Mm -hmm.